0: this is the healthcare education transformation podcast a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients students the community and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Corey, and thanks for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And from all of us here at HET, we'd like to thank our listeners for their incredible support. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Michael Wong from PhysioU. And before we get into that, we are pleased to extend a very generous offer from PhysioU as they are fully invested to change the landscape of how physical therapists learn, in which they are offering an exclusive three-month free trial available to any of our podcast followers. Anyone who would like to get this trial can direct message us on the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast Facebook page, and then we shall send you a Google form that you'll fill out and send in to PhysioU, and they will unlock your free trial. Without further ado, we present part two with Michael Wong.
0: Nice, Mike. I think that was a fantastic take in there, and you you talked a lot about some great strategies and some great directions to move forward with in terms of education in the future to really get a good integrative approach of these models and how to best break that down. But I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and kind of focus on now kind of the current DPT student or entry-level clinician. In in your experience, what are some strategies or resources that you would recommend to a DPT student or an entry-level clinician for that matter to really hone and improve their clinical reasoning skills early on?
1: I really do believe that the development of clinical reasoning skills begins with some clarity about some common clinical patterns. okay There has to be a construct in which we live as physical therapists as for, for in in my case as an orthopedic musculoskeletal physical therapist, and this construct is built around the common problems that we're going to see in the clinic so I would say. A very valuable resource and and this is not a shameless plug I I mean we built this for this very purpose as you prepare yourself for each joint I'm telling students to use the app prior to their orthopedic class because it is much easier to begin to sort yourself out early than to try to sort yourself out after you have all these hundreds of techniques that you're trying to sort through so I believe that playing through the app Let's say you're in the sh- you're in shoulder joint. You're like, I wonder what are the common problems that I'm going to see in the clinic? Because probably everything that my instructor is about to teach me is going to be associated to these common patterns. So I would say that it's valuable to say, oh, okay, so the app says there's a few main common shoulder problems. The mobility deficit, it's stiff. The movement coordination impairment, it moves too much. The unstable shoulder, whether it's labral tear or pancart lesion, whatever it might be. And the power deficit shoulder impingement, right? Some, some, the rotator cuff has problems generating power. And I'm going to watch a few videos of what these patients kind of look like and see how they're different. One guy can't get his arm up over his head. One guy has apprehension at end range. And one guy has pain on the way up and on the way down, he has full range. He just has a power problem. And I wonder, right? The question it, the question is, I wonder what are the impairments that I should be, I should be looking for associated with these conditions. You're basically beginning to sort out your mind related to these relatively high yield targets. You're developing your ability to recognize the common patterns. I'm not saying every shoulder problem. I'm saying the most common shoulder problems and I'm going to pre look, are there some things that I already know about? Oh, great. Then I don't have to memorize that. Oh, but, Oh, there's this new stuff. I can ask questions about that. I'm ready to learn these techniques because I kind of know that these are impingement tests related to a muscle power deficit, rotator cuff problem. Here's some common techniques, pendulum exercise. Ah, that makes sense. That's a mobility enhancer. No wonder if it's the mobility deficits, playing these patterns out before you get dumped on. Okay. And I'm not being mean about being dumped on as a, as a professor, we always feel like we don't have enough time and there's too much to teach. So we have that problem on our end and you have the problem at that there's too much to learn and there's not enough time. So the student needs to be proactive about setting up the patterns so they can begin to sort out the tools as they come in. Don't sort them out after we've dumped a bucket load of tools into your toolbox. First, draw the outline of the tools, recognize that they're for probably these most common problems. And now when you go to lab, now when you learn the techniques, Your mind is already pre sorted. It's a whole different game. And I would say the instructor needs to create a safe environment in which mastery can occur, and mastery comes from making mistakes. So, when you've played these patterns out and you've learned all these techniques, today our students just went through this last week. We have mentored evals, fellows, alumni who are residency trained or fellowship trained come in to play the most common patterns and the student is asked to perform a full evaluation while their peers are watching so there's 10 other students who are about to get into the hot seat they're going to do a full evaluation on someone with low back pain and radiating leg pain it's radiculopathy and they're going to do a subjective they're going to make some hypotheses they're going to do an objective exam whatever they think will answer the questions that they're trying to answer and they're going to do a reassessment a treatment A therapeutic exercise, and every patient will get patient education. Here's what's going on. Here's how long it's going to take. This is what we're going to do in physical therapy. And this is how you can help yourself. Every student will go through this process. They will do it again and again and again in our course because you must create a safe environment to develop reasoning, to allow them to use the tools and learn that sometimes they didn't have to use these other tools. And be rewarded with success when they chose the right tools and they did an appropriate treatment and they showed that the patient was getting better. This is how you create clinicians who will be confident when they come into the clinic. When they go into the clinic, you already know they have seen or done a full evaluation of all the most common problems. This is what you're talking about about a safe harbor in which clinical reasoning can be played out. It can be guided, nudged, rewarded, lightly penalized, right? You cannot penalize things too heavily because the moment fear gets in the way of experimentation, you cannot have learning, you cannot have mastery. So you celebrate success and you gently nudge them in the right direction when they don't get it right. And you do that enough times. You can't get it right the first time. That's not learning. You have to give them a safe place to fail and to succeed, and do it again and again. And clinical pattern recognition apps were built to facilitate that experience. Yeah, that's a really good point, Mike. And I think one of the things too that, uh, I mean, I, I like playing devil's advocate here, right? So let's take a look at what what are some of the ways that you think that are ineffective or things that maybe DPT students should avoid um, when it comes to clinical reasoning, like what are some of the ineffective methods that you've seen as far as clinical reasoning? Sure, goes? you know, common within this idea, I mean, my own colleagues will tell me, Hey, you know, there's a big confirmation bias coming out of your students. Like they'll see this person, this lady fifty years old with thyroid problems complaining about shoulder pain. They'll be like, Ah, got it. That's frozen shoulder and they won't even remember sometimes to do all the right tests. They're just ready to go to pendulums and start treating. Right, so a risk of making these patterns so clear is that they see the world through three patterns. Okay, so there there's certainly that risk, and I would say a, a common problem would be the years that you've spent volunteering or working as an aide, you've learned how people get through life, treating patients in kind of a rote, protocolish based way, and the instructor and the student must strive to be able to create a pattern, a way of looking at life that is built around testing of hypotheses and retesting and thinking about the things that they're doing and assessing whether things are getting better or not, right? There's this very real ebb and flow of a clinician who is trying to sort out from all the information he's gathering, what is the important information and what is the right way to help this person. So I think it's easy for a young clinician to come in with a lot of experience and say, I've got all these patterns sorted out. And I know everyone follows these patterns exactly the same way. Because then you begin to make make believe of the things that you think you found. And you end up doing the same things that you always did for this type of patient, because you believe that that's the right thing to do. And it's heavily belief driven, not test retest driven. So I think young clinicians have to be able to learn that though these patterns do exist, that they're variable in patients. What one person might benefit from a posterior capsule joint mobe, another person might benefit for the same shoulder impingement problem from scapular training exercises. Not everybody needs posterior capsule joint mobes, right? So I think there is a habit that will oftentimes follow us throughout our clinical lives. We may get better and better at convincing ourselves that the way we treat patients, the hammer that I use to take care of shoulder impingement is it's always the same hammer. When in fact, there are multiple impairments of which it's not always a hammer that you use to treat a patient with shoulder impingement. And I think that is one of the most common errors where you are no longer flexible and you're no longer letting the findings drive your intervention. You allow your belief and your somewhat overconfidence to drive your selection of treatments and you will it to work. So I think that would be one of the most common things that I see. We eventually get very good at making believe that we're doing the right thing. And we get pretty good at convincing ourselves and our patients that whatever we're doing is the right thing. When perhaps the mark of a master clinician is really being able to be flexible, doing a reasonable impairment hunt, and putting their money down on the most relevant impairment and testing and retesting, allowing the asterisk sign, the change in symptoms to be the true proof of whether I am on track with my treatments or not. If I'm on track with my hypothesis or not, I think that is the mark of the expert clinician is how quickly can they get there and how fluid they can be with finding the key impairments and applying an appropriate treatment. It's not always fixed. There's no one fixed answer. It's easy to get trapped into believing that we have the one right answer.
0: Absolutely, Mike. I think that's a fantastic take and I couldn't agree more, especially, you know, when I first went to the Maitland class, actually, for a peripheral seminar, you know, kind of got this, really got this method of examination, objective testing more so, and kind of really, really looking at that comparable sign and really ties into kind of what you're saying. And I find that to be so critical during the day because, you're right. What may work, you know, we all have inevitably for certain things might have our go to's, you know, for certain things. But you know, if we're retesting, and you're like, okay, that's not changing. Let's pull up some of these other tools and see if they work. Okay, that's not it. Maybe I'm in the wrong area. You know, maybe I need to look back and see, am I missing something? You know, so it's just, a. I, I agree. I think it's just that matter of seeing, you know, does it work? Does that did that work with that movement and retesting to kind of see how it changes that comparable sign there? So I think that's a fantastic point, Mike. Yep. And Mike, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today because I think I've learned a ton of new stuff and you knows there's definitely some great discussion there and a lot of insight about really what clinical reasoning is, how we can really implement it and kind of change it overall from an education and from a student standpoint. And, you know, we like to ask this one question to every guest at the end of each episode because we're always so curious to hear what everyone says. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, whether that be DPT or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it?
1: You know, I truly believe that to develop clinicians, the classroom time must be reorganized because... There are certain types of material where there is very little loss of transmission by allowing students to watch the material on their own time. Some of the basic didactic information that can be transitioned, okay, to online time. Students can watch it, watch it again, watch it at their own pace. The educator needs to be able to buy time, find time to create an environment in which clinical reasoning is allowed you allow clinical reasoning to be played out. And you allow for feedback, you allow for failure and success, and you must do it enough times to allow a student to trust the process and to grow in the process. In my mind, one of the biggest problems that is very difficult to overcome in in education from an educator standpoint is we only have so much time, we have a certain amount of material, and we feel like we must deliver it all face to face. To teach skills is critical in our profession. Well, don't spend time just reading books about how to perform the skill and looking at black and white pictures. A video can paint a thousand words. Okay, so uh, use new technology, use new tools to facilitate skill development and use the classroom time to help develop the skill set. Okay, so there's no question about that. Face to face manual therapy skills must be developed in the classroom. Every educator must tussle with the idea of how am I going to find time now? Because that's a given, right? I must teach these skills face-to-face, develop that skill set. So how am I going to find time to take that skill set into clinical practice to allow the reasoning to be developed in such a way that all of these tools that I've spent so much time teaching these kids to master, these young clinicians to master, have I equipped them to use it? Have I given them an environment to actually succeed in doing what they are being trained to do? Or am I leaving that in hopes that that will come together in the clinic? I believe it will come together in the clinic. I believe it will come together in the clinic better because we've allowed for that development to happen in a controlled, safe, and in a repetitive way that can happen in the classroom. To me, that is the biggest thing that I believe must occur, that there is a clear intention, there is time carved out of the curriculum to allow for these clinical reasoning based exercises they're expensive they're time consuming they require large amounts of manpower but what were you coming in the first place to be trained for that is what every young clinician came to be trained for that i would equip you with the reasoning to use all the tools that i'm training to you to use to be able to help the very person who is waiting at your door hoping that this time they would have a good therapist. This time they would have someone who had an idea of what they were doing. I believe that is not something to be left to chance. That is something that is built into every curriculum, and it is a priority of every every clinical class. That is a top priority. Because if that is not done, it will be increasingly challenging for the young clinician to have A successful career where they are happily and effectively helping their patients, serving their role out in society, I believe it is a critical step. And it's it's what I dream of supporting. It's what I it's what I am doing. It is what I'm sharing um, on, on how we do this. Because I can see we have the highest acceptance rate for residencies in the country coming out of our program. A quarter of our class goes to residency every year. And it's because I truly believe that a a young clinician's success in our field will come out of being the best. And I can help with that process by creating space to help them develop their clinical reasoning. It is a top priority in, in in our program, in our classroom. And I really believe that solves many, many problems for the young clinician that heads out into the real world. Yeah, that's a really strong call to action, Mike. I, r- I really appreciate your take on that. Um, do you think? Would you mind telling our listeners uh, where they can find you online and on social media if they have more follow-up sure. questions? Sure. You or know, just the like easiest talk? place is on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Is to find us on PhysioU. We are releasing new app updates we have new clinical reasoning videos, we do mentoring minutes where we take uh, good new articles and we make them clinically useful in short periods of time. I think just finding me on PhysioU or emailing me at mike at physiou.com, I'm happy. It's my joy actually to be interacting with students, with instructors, with sharing. I mean, I share commonly a lot of my content, what I've built, um, cases that we've built that we think are useful to students. I think that is, um, that's the best way to get a hold of me.
0: Awesome, Mike. And, you know, again, thank you so much for all the work that you've done with all this in terms of the clinical reasoning, because I think a lot of what you said is, again, it's got a very strong call to action. I think that's definitely the realm we need to go down. And actually, when we had Gail Jensen on the show not too long ago, um, she actually referenced uh, another speaker who basically said something along the lines of, you know, I don't get why we're spending all this money to look at this one part of the brain that really doesn't have that much clinical revel revelance. Instead, if we just actually focused on changing how we think about clinical reasoning and how we address that, we could really fundamentally change healthcare. Yeah, And, and I think you've hit on so many different aspects of that tonight in terms of not only that, but also how to really do it and what the process is. And I, and I thank you for that because I think that it's so valuable to hear for, you know, the newer clinicians and for the educators that really want to help make a difference. They're just finding a hard time to do it in the time and the constraints that they have.
1: Right. And I, you know, I would just say that it has been my privilege in the last six months where many, many instructors, everybody is seeking to do good for their students. Everybody knows we have the same problems. Every CI comes back and says, your students are just doing special tests or they don't know how to progress their therapeutic exercises. This is the same in every program in the world. And the things that they are saying are reflective of what we've created. The students become what we test. The students become the silos in which we teach. And so this call to action, which is making these experiential learning things that allow students to really try this thing out, do what we say we're teaching them to do, is I think it's a critical step. We will never be able to surmount or surpass this barrier that says, I think I taught them everything they need to pass the boards. Yes, we did. I think I taught them all the tests and exercises. Sure, you did. Why is it that they still don't know what they're doing out there? The answer is very clear. And so I hope that though it is not easy, a PT program is a large ship to to turn Not everybody is in control of every piece of the curriculum, but it is our responsibility as educators to begin to dream of solving these problems because the impact it has on those 50 students every year, those 100 students every year, it will impact their lives forever. I I truly believe that. And that is why we've been so relentless in trying to build these tools. And and it's not even uh, about the tools. The tools are just an adjunct. Really, the design of the curriculum and creating space to create clinicians, this is the magic. And again, uh, cheers to every professor who has laid their life on the line to be a part of this great profession, which I truly believe is one of these amazing professions that is evolving, that's changing. Cheers to each of them, and also, don't be afraid. You don't have to do things the old way. You can do things in the new way, and the students will know and they will thank you for it. And so I would encourage every every clinician, educator out there as well, don't be afraid to do things a new way. The students depend on us for that.
0: Very well put, Mike. And well, again, thank you so much for all that you've done, Mike, and it's always a pleasure.
1: Yes, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me on and uh, wishing you continued success.
0: And likewise to you, my friend. Likewise.
1: All right, guys. Take care. Have a good
0: evening. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us,
1: feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com.
0: And for those of you following along in the syllabus... Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our
1: journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.